fundamentally, I think that is in our DNA, that we, we love the lights and the sound. We love the imagery. We, we love storytelling. And that, that really kind of separates us as that technical slash artistic realm of folks. AV versus IT. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest has been the CEO of Starin Marketing for 27 years. So I'm really looking forward to learning as much as I can from all that experience from Bill Mullen. Bill, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Good morning, Patrick, or whatever time somebody is listening to this. I am uh, glad to be here. I wasn't the CEO for 27 years, by the way. I never imagined myself as a CEO. I uh, I, I took a, a course of uh, everything from sales engineer and then coming into this as kind of a sales representative and then into the marketing side, VP sales and marketing. And from that, graduated to president and then CEO. And uh, it's been really an enlightening trip in terms of uh, fundamentally learning how an organization applies its resources to what matters most. And what matters most ultimately is what is the industry calling for? What opportunities and or missing links are there within uh, the industry or our offer as an industry? And then supporting uh, our channel partners as to how they can reach um, a greater service or a uh, ability to make things easier for the customer, make things uh, more readily available, all those sort of things. Excellent. Th- thanks a lot for clearing that up. So tacking on to that a little bit more, how, what is your origin story in AV? How, how did you wind up in in this business? Well, the quick story is I grew up in Philadelphia and I had great influences from my parents taking me to musicals that uh, might be playing Philly before I headed to Broadway. I was immersed in a city that was very musical from the street corner doo-wop singing. You might have recalled seeing in the movie Rocky onto the Philly sound, the soul sound that was rich in the city at the time. And, um, from that, I also had my father, who was an engineer, and my uncle, who also was an engineer, my father for Philco, an appliance company. And uh, likewise, my uncle was with RCA. He went on to be chief engineer for the TV division. My father went on to be uh, chief engineer of the air conditioning and refrigeration uh, division, which was absorbed by Ford. Um, that meant I had a science and a technology influence from those men uh, who were coming back from war and trying to build America. And uh, so that was an interesting mix uh, that led me to the British invasion. And on the little transistor radio I built from a Heath kit, um, uh, listening to, you know, the Dave Clark five, drum set boom out of that little transistor radio and going, Oh man, I want to play. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, that started my music 
career in the in, as you would imagine in a garage band level on through to uh, playing soul songs and blues and psychedelic and and ultimately kind of a southern funk thing roots thing and what, what, uh, what instrument drumming all during that time okay uh, it wasn't until later uh, when I, I really crossed over into the recording world. I wanted to go study recording, and there was only one school at that particular time, Miami. So uh, I went to uh, uh, Ball State University in Indiana, and uh, they only had, of course, the music school, and they had radio TV. And I thought, well, okay, I can get to know production, and I can get to know uh what media uh, tools are like. So I got to know cameras and of course got to know uh, all aspects of uh, audio from that. The music school had a recording department. So um, ended up with a major in radio and television, telecommunication is now called, uh, and uh, a minor in speech and music. So I was busy playing rock and roll weekends, going fraternity parties, college clubs across uh, the Midwest. And uh, so I I really became fascinated with the recording side of the business. Of course, when the Beatles brought out Sgt. Pepper, everybody went, wow, okay, the studio becomes an instrument itself. And so um, I really wanted to get into the recording world and my band did well enough to ultimately get a contract with United Artists that put us in the studio and that got me to see the actual process. Uh, That was my, that's where I wanted to go. Um, After my band broke up, got a job at a radio and TV station in South Bend, Indiana. And out of that, got to know some guys at the station. We started doing our own independent production. We had the opportunity to pick up a contract for the convention center that was being built in South Bend and uh, maintained the AV for that. So we ended up having this nice little diverse company in a mid-sized market. And um, hence we built a studio. And uh, out of that, I, we were building, of course, everything from church sound systems to nightclubs and disco was big at that time. So I went from being a drummer to, to, to being a DJ and, Ultimately, that company I turned over to my partner. We, I went on to Chicago. I got into the DJ scene at that point. There was something called house music was emerging out of that scene where these guys, you know, were taking over warehouses and hence and the term house music. And wow, uh, it was really an explosive scene. Um, and at the same time, I'm helping uh, guys who are building a lot of jingle producers at that time were leaving you know, the core studios of Chicago recording and or universal studios and building their own places. So I've helped them do that. So right around there is where um, a guy named Jim Starin came to know me. And um, he saw my influence basically and uh, wanted me to start repping. And uh, I said, is it a regular paycheck? (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah. So that that started my manufacturing uh, connection. Yeah. So it was that uh that steady paycheck that that reliability um, that was the draw. It sounds like. Yeah, you interviewed Paul Konikowski a while back, and we'd worked together, and he knows my sons really well. My first son uh, studied the same route. He big EDM guy, and uh, 
Mm-hmm. He went to a school out here called Expression for Music Technology. And uh, Paul said, oh, he's an AV guy. He just hasn't realized it yet. So, <laughs> I'll never forget that expression. And sure enough, he, he's an AV guy now. That's funny. So I could ask you about what some of the differences are in AV now as to then, but maybe it might be more interesting to talk about what's been constant over the years. I think the constant comes down to helping people communicate better. Mm -hmm. From the time I had my studio and I was working with corporate clients and they were headed off to uh, Vegas to do a a trade show or corporate presentation, a gathering of all their dealers or what have you. And uh, back then we were doing like 16 slide synchronization shows, uh, amazing things in terms of, um, you know, putting together sync tracks to have the audio drive uh, these pretty massive um, panoramic uh, image flows. And um, so fundamentally, I think that is in our DNA, that we, we love the lights and the sound. We love the imagery. We, we love storytelling. And that, that really kind of separates us as that technical slash artistic realm of folks, AV versus IT. Uh, IT, they want to move the bits. And yet, <clears throat> you know, we're, we want to know about that. And, you know, I remember when I read Ken Pullman's digital audio book years ago, it's like, oh my God, I understand sampling. I understand Nyquist factors. I understand this now. It wasn't black magic anymore. But the constant has been that underlying, uh, how do we help people convey their story, their value in the world? That's really what we're doing. We're trying to support some organizations, some individuals, even teachers. And what is their value? Their value is to better convey and get students to realize a subject matter or realize their own internal curiosity towards uh, life, much less a subject matter. Um, And so when I see that at work in our industry, I I really get turned on. Uh, We're not selling the stuff. We're selling what people effectively do with the stuff. That's some really great insight. How, how could we do it better? What are some common things that you see where we're not focusing on the right place on that storytelling and helping people communicate? I want to applaud Avixa for them bringing the term experience into our mindset recently. I think the leadership now at Infocom is greater than ever because they really want to raise the consciousness. In the past, I think they wanted to do trade shows and create a mighty industry, and by God, they did. They really galvanized, galvan, galvanized this, this thing called AV. Uh, but the experience uh, we may think of as, you know, what is the net result of a, an incredible impact of a video wall? Okay, that's part of an experience. 
you know, um, what is the experience of the user? Um, I think we have fall, fallen short in the past of turnkey thinking, you know, that literally we put it together, say, here's how it works real quickly. We say that hand in the keys and say, see you later. Hope you have a good time, but that's changing. And I think the most, um, Alert people, aware people are, are researching and, and diving into how they could possibly uh, extend themselves into a greater value for the customer. Uh, so the experience to us at Starin recently has grown into um, what is the experience of being provided, outfitted for those communication tasks. What is the job to be done? But how do we deliver that? Uh, do we procrastinate? Do we make, do we make customers wait? Do we disappoint them throughout the entire life cycle of the project and life cycle of use? And so uh, it really takes a change in that mindset to uh, think about um, where the stumbling blocks are in your own organization. How and we've tried to study this from what are the uh, given challenges of an integrator to uh, be expedient and to be exact, to make it easy on the customer, and in the end, provide that quality outcome through a quality experience. And so we've started to realign all of our resources. You know, we I, I stopped... Uh, referring to us as a distributor a number of years ago. In fact, there's a <clears throat> David Fitzgerald at Marco laughs at how he he'll tell other people, uh, "Don't don't say distributor in front of Bill, please," <laughs> um, because uh, we really wanted to become more at a higher level of partnership uh, with our channel partners, and uh, and so we really concentrated on um, oh. Uh, channel management on behalf of the brand, but even more so, uh, where can we assist? And uh, where where can we have some intervention that the reseller slash integrator goes, oh, oh, thank yes, help us along with that. So uh, it's been a big part of what we've done over the last couple of years in particular with our, our Zoom activity. That's... Uh... Some very interesting points. I, I really like the fact, and I've thought about this myself a lot, of this idea of user experience. There's not just one user, right? It, depending on where you are in the journey, where you are in the process, um, everybody is a user at some point. So there's our end user, the person who maybe touches a touch panel, and then they have an audience, right? They're consuming what that person is saying. And going back up the chain, everybody is a user at some point. So an integrator is um, a user of your services or as a programmer, right? I'm a user of an application that somebody else developed that I'm programming in. Um, I really think that's an important part to consider the different experiences that are involved. Like who do you touch? Who, who are the people that are involved with whatever it is you're working on? Wow. Now you're really getting into ecosystem development and having an awareness for 
how do you serve or have an accountability for others within that entire ecosystem? And uh, right now I know in our business ecosystem seems to be defined by the various manufacturer partners that may be complementary to your particular product in a solution set of some kind. Well, that's really only the beginning of one form mm-hmm. of an ecosystem. Uh, you're right, the, the end user. I mean, the person who has to have procurement for Corporation XYZ sure. is in that ecosystem. And we have to understand their needs, their interests, what they're out to accomplish, how they don't want to be embarrassed, <laughs> you know, uh, for de- their decision making. And uh, so it really it takes the system thinking broadly, not system as in, you know, the schematics of a system, but this broader, uh, broader intention. Do you have any examples where maybe you've made some adjustments to one part of, of an ecosystem like that and saw results someplace else that you didn't expect it? Well, that's interesting, you know, unintended uh, consequences. Um, I can say that uh, I have to use our Zoom uh, alliance as a, a means of uh, reference to uh, to say that Zoom a couple of years ago uh, was citing, you know, we had some of our stuff accepted into their approved certified products that we could work with and mm-hmm. everybody's happy there. But um, I came to know some of the Zoom executives and, they were a little disenchanted by the response times of our industry. And um, they basically said, isn't there some way we could facilitate to our growth rate? And there was a real Zoom boom over the last few years, and there seems to be no end in sight right now. Um, I mean, I, I would say zoom to people three years ago and they go oh those little recorders and you know people in the industry and no 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 not zoom handheld recorders um and there were people across the industries that i deal with who didn't know a zoom and and now they're pretty common commonly thought of um point is that um, we needed to look at something that I, I, I heard the term from them, uh, scalability. Do you have scalability? And so I actually started to study it because I'm not a business school graduate. Um, I will say anyone in this business can find out a lot of things you know, by using independent studies all out there these days. And so uh, scalability really has to do with the level of relationship. There's a great little graphic I found of a triangle and basically one leg was scalability, the other was flexibility and the other was cost. So those three factors really go into the equation of how scalable you can be. And so to support them, I put together uh, a service level agreement that said uh, we will scale um, and have uh, if you have more and more flexibility in a system obviously can go right on up to the top most flexibility is the complete custom 
installation. You're going to do something for someone and every particular part of it deserves a very unique design approach, implementation approach, what have you. Uh, but yet, as you come down into the middle of the pyramid, you know, um, and if you come down into size and functions of systems, uh, they start to become common uh, across feature sets or functions. And so um, that's where you kind of hit the sweet spot. And that's what we did. We worked with a professional services organization there. And um, there was a determination of uh, a set, 13 basic sets of standard templates. And out of those standard templates, flexibility built into room considerations, things that you may encounter as to structural uh, considerations or other impediments in the room that you have to work around. So, you know, it's it, it, it different. You know, you might say, okay, that's system in a box, isn't it? Go, well, not exactly. Uh, it is the use, I would say, in order to be scalable, you, number one, you have to have standards. Sure. Uh, and I know, I, having worked at any number of flying uh, companies in this business, um, there was always a bone pile sitting there. And I think that came out of how flexible we were often, you know, and flexible to changes in the job. Uh, but yet we didn't get around to returning those changes in time. So therefore throw it on the bone pile. We'll maybe find a way to put into to another job or whatever. So that day of having a, a mindset of, okay, we can do anything that a consultant asks for. We can get any line. We can do any brand. So brand strategy has come into a lot of thinking of, you know, uh, particularly the integrators who are larger volume. They understand that boom pile. When I was, I was at a company that was a merged company, MCSI, notorious. Um, they bought a couple companies in Chicago and I got asked to come over there as a sales manager and ultimately got asked, what can we do with this million dollars worth of stuff? Um, and some of it already had become obsolete. And, you know, so that's a cry and shame. Yeah. And that's another, that's for another story. Let's talk about advanced supply chain and how that stuff doesn't happen in the future where we have companies produce things that in the end, and uh, I scrapped too much stuff in my life. So, but sustainability is another conversation. Let me get back to scalability. And um, standards was the basis of that, but it also brought about a service level, getting to your question, um, that we had to have oversight of a quality of service. Uh, you had to have best practices go along with those systems. That's evolved into Melissa Dillman uh, having uh, Zoom Room masterclasses created. And uh, we kicked off our training center at Starin this uh, earlier in the year, I think it was February timeframe, um, with Zoom folks. We had 60 Zoom folks come in, and uh, they were all going through um, not just our masterclass, but a their own trainings for their internal processes. And then from that, we started to bring in some of the certified integrators in the Zoom ecosystem. 
um, again, to get them to a greater proficiency level so that these guys could just execute at the level that Zoom kind of was demanding. Um, so uh, along with that, uh, we actually have had uh, a quality of service manager meeting. Uh, and when I was talking to, uh, there's a lady who's in charge of Zoom rooms. And I said, well, we just made a hire and he's going to be our QoS manager. She says, what? I said, yeah, he's, he's going to look out for from the inception of a project at the uh, original point of interest by a Zoom customer on through to how everything gets uh, taken care of. And that, that's a role that, you know, some integrators might say, well, how dare you do that? You know, we've always been in control of that. And it's like, well, no, we're not trying to tell anybody what to do. We're just trying to give guidelines. <laughs> we're just trying to say, if Zoom's goal is to deliver happiness, their motto, let's join that because <laughs> it's a good <laughs> cause. Um, and um, so the oversight is mostly just, you know, if they have questions and, and to be a, a, a go-to um, and to, to make them more efficient. And hopefully out of this, I, I think I've seen where some integrators in this process are starting to examine and just go, oh, okay, maybe we need to you know, tweak this and that ourselves. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the, result in the resulting consequence has been the satisfaction by customers and, and our own internal awareness of uh, uh, how we all work together towards that. Yeah. Interesting. So there's obviously many points you touched on. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, so you mentioned Zoom, a great example of a software driven uh, solution where we used to have a piece of hardware and it had to be that piece of hardware. Now that doesn't matter anymore. You could use any old computer and install Zoom on there. So it's software is right. One of the great things about it is it's scalable, flexible, um, cheaper, all those things you were talking about. But in order to really get there, it seems like we need to standardize in order to create a good outcome when we're when we're um, working at any kind of a scale. You also mentioned there was a little bit of dissonance with your traditional AV integrator when these standards were introduced. So is is that the resistance that we're resisting standards because we're just accustomed to creating custom systems all the time, or is there something else happening? And and how do we how do you see things going forward to kind of square this problem? Well, I think it's it's natural that you know if you have had a method and approach to things that uh, kind of worked and you know got you um, good business uh, that you you'd want to perpetuate that. Um, uh, some of it is, you know, I, even I, you know, we all have that kind of rugged individualism, uh, cowboy at times, uh, that, you know, we're going to do it my way. <laughs> and um, so we, uh, there's a little bit of all of that in there. And, and it's really interesting that, you know, we're in the age of collaboration, you know, and as an industry, we should be going across, you know, you've heard that co-opetition you know yeah. and sometimes even frenemy some of these funny terms that have come up 
And it's really indicative of what ecosystems are about and trying to get um, a collection of uh, interests together. So well, when, you, when you really start to cite um, software and its impact, and, and this has to do with scalability too, you have to consider this movement is really AV everywhere. AV is everywhere. Yeah. I remember there was an interior design company, the largest in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he was in the leadership group with me. So early on, some eight years ago, he goes, oh, yeah, maybe you're the guys who come in after we get the interior built out and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I saw him maybe two years ago, ran into him, and he goes, you know what? You guys are everywhere. And this is a company that not only is an interior, but he came from HOK. So they actually started to build up their internal architect capabilities um, they, they have their go-to contractors, but then they've started to say, maybe we ought to have an in-house electrical guy. Maybe we ought to have, them. so they've started to do that holistic approach. And, uh, it was funny for him to say, well, we're actually even thinking about whether we should have AB inside hmm. because it's so omnipresent. And so, so we have to accept that that's happening in the world. And as a result, we're, we're a specialty. But at the same time, we're not as niche as we used to be. Yeah. And um, yeah. so the big impact of software, uh, software anything, not just codecs, and I think there's a lot more possibilities for resident software of AV to be on things. You know, the big impact uh, is basically cloud AV that um, includes the Internet of Things. You know, how long before, you know, somebody invents some new AV software and it resides on some IoT device, you know. Um, so if AV is indeed everywhere, uh, le what level of magnitude does that imply for our industry? If we thought the impact of the smartphone, you know, the smartphone is, you know, my portable polycom video conferencing unit now. It's yeah. It's also... You know, it's a streamcaster. It's a recording studio. It's it's all of these things, and basically that mobility that we got with the phone created the whole huddle revolution, right? Sure. I mean, we introduced ClickShare at an amazing time. We connected with Barco like the stars aligned, and uh, it was so ideal because portability and even worker behavior had changed. Because of portability, people were away from the beehive a lot. And when they came back to the beehive, some of them, of course, went, there's a big push for real estate purposes for corporations to move people into their home offices. So suddenly, these huddle spaces became these touch points that were needed. Um, and so that was a real tectonic shift um, with devices everywhere. Um, and if, if you look at Cloud AV, I have... I have cloud AV at my front door. Yeah. You know, I, I'm away from, you know, that I'm in California right now. And I've been talking to delivery people. <laughs> I said, um, so that's the consciousness that we, we have to have about what's going on here. Um, so, um, it, it becomes, 
a matter of scale. How can you assist in that new world? Yeah. And I think having the constraints uh, was a benefit to us in the past because you can do this, you can't do that. And at this point, like some of the applications you're mentioning, they're completely outside of all our ballpark, but it's still AV. So there's a lot more opportunity to be creative, but at the same time, there's a push for standardization. Well, it doesn't mean you have to go be all things to all people. Sure. I mean, you certainly have your specialty, but you should also have to understand how do I play in a smart building? How do I play in a smart world? of interconnected devices and uh, you know survival is not the survival of the strongest or the biggest uh, it's the most adaptable yeah. and so uh, how you you finding your way in that is it's going to be really exciting absolutely um, any advice on how to continue moving forward and uh, yeah be more adaptable well, I think one of the things you have to look at is general, um, sometimes a vertical market, sometimes application, uh, sometimes even venue. Um, so at Stern, we had this formula, ABB equals SSS. And I teach that basically to give uh, purpose to what are we trying to accomplish. And of course, applications are what functionally a system does uh, to uh, get something done. What's the job to get done? And does that application get it done better? Uh, then you have, of course, vertical market and you have venue. So you have to look at, you know, what what vertical markets are not dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. you know, where is there going to be strong activity? Uh, you have to look at, you know, some folks have made themselves venue specialists. So I think specialization is still very needed in this world, but you have to be able to interconnect. Um, I would say um, you have to you have to really add discipline to what you're doing. Uh, that goes back to it's tied to system thinking. But um, man, there's there's way too much. Um, in a time when AV was in demand, um, and then along came you know the Great Recession, um, everybody had to reexamine you know their practices and waste. Uh, inefficiencies, you know, process is really, you know, such a major thing. And software helps that. Um, project management in our industry has been um, fairly lax at times. And if there's one thing in, in a form of project management you can learn, and that is agile, uh, and that is how do you how do you have the ability to adeptly move? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's also change. Um, so uh, greater organizational skills in the way of project management is, is tied to all that. Thanks for that. Um, what I really took away from there was it kind of circles back to the beginning when we were talking about all the different users in any particular project workflow 
and you're talking about focusing in on niches, there are plenty of niches out there. A lot of times it's, it's not the technology that makes a solution good. It's, it's serving all the users that are involved in a, in a particular niche. Amen. It's how much they love you at the end of the thing. <laughs> and it's, yeah. the, it's, the, it's the end of, here's a great thing I got out of uh, Salesforce in a nutshell. And that is uh, they were doing a presentation on uh, customer success. And they were talking about all the ways we as a customer could have success and all the support that they have for that. And in the end, it, I had the, one of those stupid epiphanies, you know, if it's not a stupid epiphany, it's not a good one because you realize how stupid you are not to real, realize it before now. And so I realized they were, what they were saying is it's not about the success we're having with you as the customer. It's about the success you're having as a customer with us. So, man, you turn that around and suddenly you're going to do things different. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a matter of changing your mindset, I guess is really what I want to say. Absolutely. Um, this has been a really great talk. Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap things up? I think there's going to be further uh, software adaptation. Um, I think the idea of uh, server-based or enterprise-based processing, you know, the, the thought that we would plunk some kind of processor in 50 rooms across a building or campus or whatever the case may be, where uh, in this day, as we get faster fiber and uh, other means of moving AV around, as we become much greater uh, network capable uh, implementation folks, you know, we're going to be able to say, okay, we won't just settle for what the network folks give us as criteria for uh, having digital media, uh, we're, we're actually going to start to come up with some of our own advances and standards. And uh, that'll be a glorious thing in terms of uh, whether it's throughput or anything else. But at that point, we'll, we'll certainly allow for um, what I call that enterprise rather than 50 pieces in a room, everything will, you know, and Dante and some of these things are bridges towards that from the capture devices and the presentation devices on through to centralized processing. You have some of, you know, I think the QSIS folks and, and others out there are looking at that world. Um, and, and so that's a case where everything that you've seen in a box ordinarily and the algorithms and the processing that has been baked into that is going to be available as a plugin uh, to a server. And it's like, okay, you have, um, 300 potential microphones in this building and um, they're all going to come back to the central processor and you're going to manage those accordingly. You may only need um, in a theoretical study, you could just say, um, we're only going to really need about 200 channels of processing at a time because we now know the user experience we've measured and monitored. You know, we never use all our microphones at once and all that sort of thing. So I hate to get real sci-fi on you, but, I do just for the fun. And I'll, let me go back to one last thing. And it was about that mapping of an experience. When we said just a moment ago that uh, who's in that ecosystem of your workflow? Uh, have you mapped your workflow? Have you, have you mapped, we might meet the curmudgeon. What do we do when we meet the curmudgeon? Mm -hmm. 
well, is he the IT guy? Is he in purchasing? Is he an executive? Is, is he whatever? And have you really thought about the, the concerns of the people in your ecosystem? So I, mapping has become a big thing with me, and this is my very last thing. Visualization. There's a great book called Draw to Win. I think everybody should go out and get it in our industry tomorrow. Why? It's a really simple book. This guy is not trying to make us artists. But if we're going to have touch panels sell, finally, not touch panels as in put them into a smart classroom and they sit there gathering dust, but actually touch is coming, right? So people want touch because they want to be able to plot and show what they're thinking. You know, sometimes it's a process, sometimes other concepts. So if we're able to do that ourselves, that's great. And if you're able to do that, then you're able to bring it into your organizational thinking as to what, is, what are my workflows, what are the people within my world, and, and how do I end up having a support touch point for those people. So thanks for <laughs> letting me go on here. I, I kind of feel like I've hopped around things, but... The good thing is now I have a new president in Bobby Schwartz at Stern, and, and now that gives me the dangerous opportunity to just be working on things strategically. <laughs> so I start to think this way. Uh, it all sounds very exciting. I, I learned quite a bit. Um, uh, we could probably go on for another hour, but um, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how, how would they go about doing that? Um. I'm Bill.Mullen, M-U-L-L-I-N, at Starin.B-I-Z, so some squatter does have.com. Um, but of course, any of my folks, you know, we try to run a real transparent, lean organization. So anybody at Starin, you could say, what's Bill doing? And they should be able to get to me. And even better, I'll probably be able to say, hey, you know what? If we had a session together, uh, this is where we're headed. We want to be doing on-demand everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember five years ago, I said, the day of the luncheon part is over. Yeah. Uh, people don't want information until they need it. Yeah. And so we're going towards an on-demand everything environment. And that's another thing you have to keep in mind. Uh, sitting in hotel rooms for trainings are good to a degree. You need to crystallize your thoughts, but uh, it's it's that support thing that matters most. So I think the whole industry should should be and and a lot of it is shifting towards that absolutely bill thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today patrick it was my pleasure if you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an av programmer join the club that's how i used to feel i was just an amx programmer or just a crestron programmer whatever language of your choice is whatever it may be there's generally this feeling in av that we're not capable of using modern programming languages and it simply isn't true sure there's a learning curve but once you get through it all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system It's not an either-or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses... 
I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies... I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.